We are beginning, I believe, in verse 15. Let me open up my Bible and make sure. Yes, verses 15 to 28. There's an old Middle Eastern folktale dating from the ancient kingdom of Persia, which is in what is now Iran. And the, the tale tells of a good and wise ruler over this ancient kingdom who genuinely loved his people. And he wanted to know how they lived and um, wanted to know about their hardships. So periodically he would dress in the clothes of, of a working man or a beggar, and he would visit the homes of the poor. And no one who he visited knew at that time that he was their ruler in disguise. But as people later came to discover it, he came to be loved and revered all the more as a truly good and honored ruler. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar and ate the coarse food that the man ate and spoke cheerful, kind words to him. And later he left. Um, and after that, he decided to visit the poor man again. This time he was in his royal regalia with his entourage, and he revealed, I'm your king who came to visit you. And the king thought the man would surely ask him for some gift or some favor, but the man didn't. Instead, the man said gratefully, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the same coarse food that I eat. You brought gladness to my heart by your visit. To others, you've given your great riches. But to me, you've given yourself. To, to understand what this poor man felt, let, let me ask you a question. If you could meet and spend time with anyone, who would it be? A famous person? A important world leader, a personal hero, a love interest. <laughs> Who would you most like to meet and get to know? Whose presence would you most like to enjoy? Well, I think that this story that we, we just listen to, and, and this question that I just asked is a reminder, a good reminder of what I'm coming to realize is probably the greatest, most important theme in the whole Bible. Presence. God's presence. The value, the desirability of having God present with us. We see it in the very beginning of the biblical story in the Garden of Eden. This royal, luxurious garden that God had created uh, to be present there with us as humans. Of course, the humans rebelled against God and lost their place in God's presence. And so then the whole story of Scripture is the story of how God makes a way to invite humanity back into God's presence again. First on Mount Sinai, and then through the tabernacle, and later the temple, God instructs Moses to set these up with lots of laws and regulations about how to make them holy spaces and how to keep them holy so that the holy God can continue to dwell among the people. 
Then in the New Testament, God comes to be present among us through his son, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. And then after God was physically present with us in this way, he now sends his Holy Spirit to dwell among us as his people. Until the day when he will make a new heavens and a new earth, and we will dwell in God's presence forever. From beginning to end, it's all about God's presence. It's all about how we can be present with God and God can be present with us in relationship together. And God's presence is desirable because God is desirable. And also because where God is, there is life, there is security, there is flourishing. Like a water source in the desert where God is, there is flowering and fruitfulness in the midst of barren waste. Think of your own life and the lives of of those you love. Are there problems? Is there disorder? Is there chaos? Is there trouble? Is there emptiness? Do you long for solutions? Those aren't best found in the latest self-help book. They're found by making a habit of being in God's transforming presence. Where order is brought to chaos. Where disorder and trouble are sorted out into peace and flourishing. Not all at once, although we would love it to be all at once. But over time, when God is present with us, and among us, and that has an effect on us. So God's presence is everything. And that's the backdrop of today's story, or today's passage. And in fact, it's the backdrop of the past past few chapters of Hebrews, which have been talking about the tabernacle, and the priests who ran the tabernacle, and how Christ is a new and better priest with a better ministry in a better tabernacle. Christ is the one who makes a way for us to be in God's presence, far beyond what was available in the Old Testament times. As we've moved into chapter 9 now of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has begun to shift our attention from Jesus as a better priest to the fact that Jesus as priest has offered a better sacrifice. The Old Testament tabernacle was maintained by sacrifices. It was no easy thing to have a holy and pure God present among an unholy and impure people. The people kept getting dirty both literally and figuratively, both ceremonially and morally. And they'd tramp this dirt, this uncleanness, through and into God's holy land where they dwelt, and then into the temple and through the priests, right into God's holy presence. And so God set up elaborate rituals and sacrifices to continually cleanse and purify his tabernacle so God could continue to be present with his people and among them. And now this next point is weird and it's creepy for us today, but it was perfectly normal for people back then. 
And that was that these rituals, these cleansing rituals, involved blood. Blood, because blood represents life given up and life poured out in death. And the blood came from sacrificial animals that died, that gave their lives in place of the people. Verses 23 and 20, or sorry, 22 and 23 now of our passage. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, that is the earthly tabernacle set up by Moses, to be purified with these sacrifices. And so all of that is backdrop to today's passage. And additionally, there's one more background concept we need to have in mind, and that is the covenant. We've talked about the covenant before. A covenant is, in this case, the agreement, the commitment, the arrangement, and the responsibilities that make God, God's presence with his people possible. A covenant is a solemn agreement. It binds parties together. Probably the only covenant that we still have in our culture today is marriage, and even that one is on shaky ground. But marriage is powerful, right? It it makes people who were once unrelated strangers now to become family. Names are often changed. New families are created. Bank accounts are often combined. Love and intimacy are shared. A covenant makes two one in the most serious and binding way. And God makes a covenant with his people. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. From now on, our lives, our futures, our reputations, our identities will be bound up with one another. And God says, I will be present in your midst, and you will be close to me. That's covenant. And and as we saw with the tabernacle, so also with the covenant, blood is key to the forming of covenant, and so death is key. Because covenants are not easily broken. They are such serious commitments that there are penalties for unfaithfulness for going back on your word, for being faithless and betraying your covenant partner. And the penalty is often death. And so in the ancient world, when a covenant was formed, animals would be sacrificed to symbolically say, as this animal sacrificially has been killed, so may I likewise be killed if I break this covenant. May what happened to the animal happen to me. And so Hebrews reminds us, starting in verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. 
Everything that was key to the covenant, the law which contained the stipulations, the details of the covenant agreement, the people who were making the covenant, the, the tabernacle that was the means by which God would be present with the people under the covenant, it was all sprinkled with blood to signify its important role in the covenant and the deadly penalty that was in force should either party break the covenant. So again, backdrop to today's passage. God's presence is key to everything. And in the Old Testament, for God to be present involved a covenant, a solemn agreement, and a whole system of rituals to keep the place of God's presence cleansed and purified so God could dwell in the midst of an impure people. And all of it was inaugurated and maintained by blood by sacrificial animals who gave their life in the place of the people to cover over and cleanse and forgive the faults, the sins, the failures of the people. Now what Hebrews is pointing out in today's passage is that this old covenant system was far from ideal. It worked sort of as a temporary measure. But it was all sort of bubblegummed and duct taped together. As we saw uh, two Sundays ago, up in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipers. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. You see, the problem with the old covenant was that it was superficial. It was external. It could deal with with outward things, but it couldn't deal with the heart. All of these sacrifices could make people externally clean, but they couldn't clean their consciences, their minds, their hearts. And so God remained at arm's length. God was present among the people in the tabernacle, but the people couldn't go in. Only the priests could go in on their behalf and and as we saw two Sundays ago, the priest could only go in part way. It was only the high priest and only once a year that he could go into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And so the message of today's passage is the good news that now, since Christ has come under the new covenant, God has given us something so much better. Through Jesus Christ, we are now invited into a new and a better covenant inaugurated and maintained by a better sacrifice so we can better enjoy God's presence. And today's passage gives us three ways that this new covenant, this new arrangement between us and God so that we can enter and enjoy God's presence is better than the old one was. Let's look at the three. First, the blood sacrifice that Jesus made has been applied and implemented in a better location. Not 
in an earthly tabernacle or temple. Remember, we've seen previously in Hebrews that the earthly tabernacle made by human hands was only a copy, a shadow of the real place that God dwells, which is in heaven. And here Hebrews tells us that the great thing about Jesus' sacrifice is that Jesus, our better high priest, took the sacrifice and the blood of the sacrifice right into God's heavenly presence and applied it there. Verses 23 and 24. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, that is in the earthly tabernacle, to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. The sacrifice Christ offered, he offered in a better location in God's heavenly presence itself. Now, I've been trying to think of an illustration that could help us get our minds around the significance of this better location. And the best I can come up with, and I don't think it's perfect, but hopefully it's helpful, is the time one of our kids had Lyme disease. And uh, the doctor prescribed a round of antibiotics a pill that our child was to take orally each day for a certain number of days. But after that treatment, the Lyme was still there. The oral antibiotics hadn't worked. The location that they had been applied to hadn't been effective in getting at the root of the Lyme. So we had to ratchet the treatment up a notch. This time, every day, our child had to receive IV antibiotics. A line was put in, and each day our child got a dose straight into their bloodstream, more strongly and more directly directed at the Lyme. And this time it worked. The treatment was more effectively directed at the location of the Lyme. And again, I realize both biologically and theologically it's not a perfect analogy, but I hope it at least gives us a picture of how Jesus' sacrifice is applied in a better location. Not in the earthly copy of God's presence, but directly before God in God's heavenly presence itself. And so it's effective. The second way the new covenant arrangements is better, the blood sacrifice Jesus offered is more potent and more penetrating and more internal for us than the sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant. In other words, not only does Christ's sacrifice touch God more directly by being made in God's direct heavenly presence, but it touches us more deeply. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't just cleanse us ceremonially and externally and ritually. No, Christ's sacrifice is absorbed and penetrates into our very heart and cleanses our very conscience. We see this back up in verses 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. 
Richard Heffler's book, Will Daylight Come, gives an illustration of how our conscience can keep us from enjoying God's presence and the good things God offers. A brother and sister were once visiting their grandparents, and the young boy, Johnny, had just been given his first slingshot. He practiced in the woods, but he could never hit anything. <laughs> he came back to Grandma's yard a bit discouraged, and he spied her pet duck. And on an impulse that only little boys can explain, he took aim and he shot. And this time, to his surprise and horror, the stone hit and the duck fell dead. Well, Johnny panicked. He hid the dead duck in the wood pile, only to look up and see his sister Sally watching. Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked if the kids wanted to go fishing, and Grandma said, well, I'm sorry, it's getting close to supper time, and I want Sally to help me. Sally smiled and said, I'm sure Johnny wants to do it. <laughs> Again, she whispered, remember the duck, and Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his own chores and Sally's chores, finally he couldn't stand it. He confessed to Grandma that he'd killed her duck. I know, Johnny, she said, giving him a hug. I was standing at the window, and I saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Just like Sally, we sometimes let our conscience make a slave of us. We let it keep us from the good things God wants for us in God's presence. Yes, we're often guilty, but we have a high priest who has brought a sacrifice right into the very presence of God. A sacrifice that is effective, which penetrates us so deeply that it can cleanse our conscience and erase our guilt so that we are free to be forgiven and to be restored fully in our relationship with God. That's why Robert Murray McChaney has given the great advice, which I try to remember regularly. He said, for every one look that you take at yourself and your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Christ's sacrifice is powerful and potent. It penetrates to the very heart of who we are and cleanses us completely of our guilt. And then the third way the new covenant arrangement is better, the blood sacrifice that Jesus made to inaugurate and sustain the new covenant is final and enduring. The old covenant system or sacrifices were done every year on the Day of Atonement, year after year. And additionally, at many other times when the people had sinned. The, the effects of, of those sacrifices never lasted. Just like your house keeps getting dirty, right? <laughs> Every day, dishes seem to pile up in the kitchen. 
Every week or so, the carpets need vacuuming, the toilet and the sink need cleaning, etc. That's how it was under the old covenant. Things kept getting unclean and impure, and so you had to keep sacrificing to re-cleanse them. But not so with Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus made his sacrifice once and for all, and it has had a lasting and enduring effect ever since. Verses 25 and following. Nor did Christ enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Once for all. One and done. Christ's sacrifice is better than those of the old covenant because its effects are final and lasting and permanent. Which means we don't have to do anything to atone for our own sins or to make up for them. Like Johnny in that story, we don't have to keep making up for what we've done wrong and keep doing wrong. Because we've been forgiven once for all. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. And so all we have to do is put our faith in Christ and keep trusting him. Yet I think a lot of us are like the girl that Hannah Whitehall Smith, the holiness writer of the 1800s, described in her classic book, The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. She writes, A precocious little girl once asked me whether the Lord Jesus always forgives us for our sins as soon as we ask him. And I said, yes, of course he does. Just as soon, she said doubtingly. Yes, I replied, the very minute we ask, he forgives us. Well, she said deliberately, I cannot believe that. I should think that he would make us feel sorry for two or three days first. And then I should think he would make us ask him a great many times and in very pretty language too, not just common talk. Smith concluded, she only said what most Christians think. And what's worse, what most Christians act on. Isn't that the truth? How often we let our guilt keep us from God's presence. As we somehow think we've got to contribute something to patching up the relationship before we can go back to God. We've got to be sufficiently sorry before we can be forgiven. But what all of this really says is, Jesus, I don't believe your sacrifice is enough. I don't trust that it's really effective. Here, let me contribute something too. 
Here Hebrews again wants to get our eyes off of ourselves and say, don't think your sins are so big or so bad that Christ can't handle them. Look at Christ. Look at him ten times. Look at how big, how great, how effective his sacrifice was. Your puny sins are no match. Jesus' blood can instantly cleanse them all by the power of God. And so our passage ends, verses 27 and 28. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so here Hebrews is pointing us beyond this life and the way Jesus has opened up for us to enjoy. It's pointing us to the way that Jesus has opened up for us so that we can enjoy God's presence now. And it's also pointing us to the future and to the opportunity we will have to enjoy God's presence fully and forever. We're destined to die once, Hebrews says. There's no reincarnation. Just one life, one death, and then we will stand before God for our lives to be judged. What did we do with what we've been given? What kind of person did we become? Did we grow? Did we cooperate with God's transforming work in our lives, or did we resist it or ignore it? Were our lives fruitful? Did we become truly selfless, loving people like Christ, in whose image we are being transformed? One life, one death, one judgment, but also one sacrifice to take away our sins. For Jesus, our high priest, to intercede and say, yes, his or her record was far from perfect. She sinned. He fell short. But I died on their behalf. I sacrificed myself, and my blood cleanses and forgives their sins. All their sins. All their shortcomings. And then I will return, Jesus continues, a second time, not to deal with sins they've been dealt with already, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for me, for those who are trusting in me, who are depending on me to be their priest and are following me and giving me their allegiance as their king. What kind of salvation are we waiting for? We're waiting to be rescued from this present world and for our Savior to inaugurate a new transformed world, a new heavens and a new earth in which we can live with God in God's presence fully forever and ever. As heaven joins earth and God's presence is freely and fully available all throughout the new creation. Remember, that's what it's all about. That's what we long for, whether we know it or not. God's presence. 
Because where God is present, chaos and disorder and trouble are banished. And we get to relate to God and know God personally, face to face. All because of what Christ, our great high priest, did. What a sacrifice. What a covenant. What a salvation. Let's pray. All that we've been talking about is made available to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're not trusting Jesus Christ to be the one who forgives your sins and reconciles you to God, all you have to do to begin is say, Jesus, I want to trust you. I want you to wash away my sins. I want to get to know you and to follow you and the way that you have for me. And you can silently pray that prayer right now. And for the rest of us, I want us to think as we pray, what is God saying to you this morning? And so God, um, we've heard a lot of wonderful things, but I pray that you would make clear to us and speak loudly to our hearts the one thing we mostly need to go away with this morning. Give us ears to hear, open up our hearts to hear from you what it is that you most want to say to us about your son Jesus this morning. In his name, amen.